Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We have uh, God the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and in his, under the concept of his filling ministry, he teaches us the word, stores it in our soul, and then brings it back to our memory for application. So we need to make sure we're in fellowship, and we always take a few minutes of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, it's a wonderful opportunity we have to study your word because it is the refreshing water that uh, refreshes and encourages us, that strengthens our soul. Father, we pray now as we study your word that you would help us to understand these things, that we would not shrink back from the challenge of your word to think according to the categories and concepts of your word, to have your thoughts as our thoughts and to renovate our thinking according to the absolute categories of your word. So, Father, we pray that we would understand these things and apply them in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 1. Last week, we began our introductory study of the book of Ruth. Ruth takes place during the same time period as the Judges, but probably at the earlier period of the Judges rather than the later period of the Judges. And last time we looked at several things by way of introduction, which I will review so that we all can get our minds back on Ruth. During the time of the Judges, it was a period of of, uh, lawlessness in Israel. The key verse in Judges was that there was no king in the land, meaning that they had rejected the absolute authority of God, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the culture was dominated by moral relativism. It's dominated by lawlessness. It's dominated by a rejection of divine authority and apostasy. They had rejected God and substituted the worship of the idols of the Canaanite, various Canaanite gods and goddesses in the fertility religion of Canaan. And so it was a time of apostasy. As a result of that, there was an internal breakdown in the nation, they were continuously going through cycles of divine discipline based upon the um, cycles described in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 when Israel, that God would bring to Israel when they disobeyed him. Now, we know that Ruth takes place during the time of Judges 19 through 21 because there are various uh, vocabulary words and concepts that are similar. The difference is that as these events took place in Judges 19 to 21, there's always seems to produce calamity and chaos. 
Yet when similar words are used in Ruth, there are differences because the people involved have integrity from doctrine in their souls and the results are different. So Judges 19 through 21 was a picture of the chaos, calamity, and the breakdown in the nation because of rejection of doctrine and rejection of the truth. And Ruth is a picture of God's grace in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the calamity, in the midst of all of the self-destruction and self-induced misery in Israel and how God's grace was still working and brings order out of chaos. The book of Ruth, I stated last time, was found in the uh, in a different order in the in the uh, Hebrew canon than in the English order of the canon. Remember, the Hebrew canon has three divisions. It has the first division, which is the Torah, the Law. The second division is the prophets, uh, made up of the former prophets and the latter prophets. And the former prophets would include Judges, Joshua, Judges. Um, Kings, Samuel and Kings, because they were written by the prophets, and the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then the writings. And the writings focused on wisdom literature. That's what made them unique. You had passages like Lamentations. You have uh, uh, Proverbs, Job, Psalms, were wisdom literature taking, uh, teaching the application of doctrine in particular situations. And they were also works of art, works of wisdom. There is a, a literary wisdom to the way they are structured, to the way they are organized. And Ruth is in that category. Ruth is in the Ketuvim. And Ruth is one of those books that in the Hebrew you have to read slowly and carefully because the writer is extremely nuanced in the way he uses words and the way he structures his thought in order to bring about and make sure we understand certain doctrines. But if you're not paying attention and if you read through it too fast, then things are missed. So it's an artistic book in the Hebrew, and it is, it, there are several themes interwoven through it, several doctrines that are emphasized, which we'll get into. But the major theme relates to spiritual life, and we know that because of its position in the canon. We know that in the early part of the, the uh, history of Israel, there is an analogy with the spiritual life or the life of the believer. You have the call of Abraham, which is analogous to the call of the believer. You have the uh, redemption of the Jews, which is analogous to the redemption of the believer from the slave market of sin. You have the is Israel going through the Red Sea, which is analogous to the believer's baptism and by the Holy Spirit and identification with Christ. And then the everything that happens after that has to do with the post-salvation life of the believer. It is only after the nation is redeemed that they're given the law, God's uh, protocol plan for Israel under their... Uh, under the Mosaic economy. You see the failure or the success of the nation in Joshua as they're conquering their enemies. You see their failure in Judges as they compromise with their enemies. And the same thing is true in the believer's life. We have battles that go on day in and day out in our soul. And Judges is a picture of the believer that is in failure, but even in the midst of that failure, God never never leaves us, God never forsakes us, God never left Israel or forsook Israel, and even in the midst of all of their apostasy, even in the midst of all their rebellion, even in the midst of all of the horrendous things that were going on in Israel, God is still working in their lives. Grace is still present even in the midst of cursing. 
And that is one of the major themes that we'll develop as we go through this book. Now, the focus in Ruth is not on Ruth. Ruth is one of three major characters. The three characters are Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth. Ruth is the least dominant character in the book. It's really about Naomi. It is about Naomi. It is about the suffering that she goes through in her life. It's about the adversity. It's about her initial response to that adversity, which makes her bitter. And yet, by the end of the book, she has changed her thinking, and she is blessed. And so we see this thematic shift from cursing to blessing, showing that God's grace continues to work even in the midst of tremendous heartache and difficulty. The final thing that we looked at last time was the importance of understanding the covenant background to Ruth, that we looked at the Mosaic Covenant, which is built on the analogy and the form of the ancient suzerain vassal treaty that was used in in the ancient empires, and a great king would impose a relationship upon a lesser nation or lesser power, and there were certain structures that were covered in that, and the Mosaic Law is laid out according to a suzerain vassal treaty form. And in that treaty, the great king promised to do certain things for the vassal, for the servant nation. And Israel is in that position as a servant nation or covenant nation to God, And God says, as long as you do what you're supposed to do, then I will bless you in these ways. But if you are disobedient, if you violate the treaty, if you violate the contract, then I will uh, curse you in certain ways. And uh, in the context of the suzerain vassal treaty, what we discover is the important word that is played out in, in Ruth, and that is the Hebrew word chesed, which has to do with God's faithful loyalty to his covenant. It's often translated loyal love in scriptures or God's steadfast love. But in English, that word love always carries this uh, almost a sentimental, emotional baggage with it. And that's not what you find in the biblical concept of chesed. It has to do with action, not feeling. It has to do with, with consistent behavior, not emotion. And it's the same concept that underlies what Jesus says to the disciples in the upper room when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a concept of action and activity, not feeling or emotion. Now, last time we stopped just at this point as we were beginning to get into the book of Ruth. And there are two ways that we can exegete scriptures. One way is to just plunge into a book, starting with verse 1, and just start working our way through it one verse at a time. But I like to begin by looking at a book in light of its general position in the canon, as we've already done, and then look at the overall structure and flow of the book to see what the author, both the divine author and human author, had in mind when they're writing the book. Because once you understand the thematic structure of the authors and the author's intent, then that which takes place in the book has to be controlled or its interpretation is controlled by understanding what the author is trying to communicate. If you don't understand the overall purpose and structure of a book, whether it's 1 Corinthians, 1 John, Hosea, or Ruth, then you're liable to go in and take verses out of context and apply them in inappropriate ways and interpret them in inappropriate ways. So we need to understand something about the structure of Ruth So we'll begin by looking at the first, just a quick overview of the first five verses. Verse 1, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed 
that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. So we're introduced to the historical background. Verse 2, And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilian also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. And so now she has suffered loss. They are left outside the land. They are deserted from those who will take care of them, and it's a scene of tremendous heartache and bitterness. And then let's turn to the end end of the book and look at how it finishes. Ruth 4, verse 14. Notice the ending of the book doesn't focus on Ruth. It brings the focus back to Naomi. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And, and the term go, Redeemer is the Hebrew word Goel. And it has to do with a kinsman Redeemer. And we'll get into that whole concept as we study this. But it is a picture of the redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross that he had to be our kinsman redeemer and that has to do with the fact that he had to be true humanity in order to die on the cross as our substitute. But the concept in, in uh, ancient Israel was that if, if a man died and left his wife childless, then she would marry a relative. It was called leveret marriage. She would marry a relative of the husband and raise up children in the first husband's name, and they would become, uh, they would be heirs to his property, so that the property in Israel would stay in the family line and would not be uh, dispersed. And so Naomi, who is left childless, and Ruth, who is childless, now have Naomi now has a child to carry on her family name and her influence in Israel. So she is now blessed. She's gone from cursing to blessing. The Lord has taken care of her despite the circumstances. She has not been left without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So the shift goes to Naomi and not Ruth. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And David, of course, is the greater king of Israel, the, the, the uh, ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is referred to as the son of David. And so the picture here that we cannot miss is that in the, the book starts with cursing. The book starts with loss, it starts with sorrow, it starts with the heartache of, of mankind, and starts with Israel, really in divine discipline. And the family is a picture of what's going on in Israel in divine discipline. And by the end of the book, God has been working in his grace through the whole situation. He never deserts, never forsakes, never forgets his people. And by the end of the book, we have this suggestion of how God is going to uh, reverse uh, the fortune of Israel and God is going to restore greatness to Israel and God ultimately is going to provide redemption 
despite the failures and flaws and rebelliousness of man. So that introduces us to the major theme of this book, which is the, transform, is the grace transformation of cursing into blessing. Now, the beginning verses, the first five verses, introduce us to this terrible situation faced by this family. Most trials, most heartaches, most family crises have certain things in common. And here we're faced with all the heartache and misery and pain and bitterness that life experiences seem to bring to every one of us at one time or another. It always amazes me. Sometimes we sit across the pew in church and we look at someone else and we think, boy, they have it all together and they don't have any problems in their life and they just uh, seem to be able to live their Christian life without any problems. And, and most of the time we don't know all of the heartaches, all the problems, the difficulties that people are going through, struggling with uh, problems with their children to problems with their parents, problems with employment, whatever it may be. Every one of us goes through difficulties. Job says man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And we all face adversity in life. We all face suffering, suffering that is self-induced because of bad decisions we make, and suffering that we encounter simply because we live in a fallen world where everyone is, is a sinner, everyone we associate with is a sinner, and so we become uh, the objects and, and we feel the brunt of other people's bad decisions. And that means that sometimes when we are doing everything right, everything goes wrong and everything collapses around us, and then we're often left trying to uh, figure out why this happened, and too many people who don't have any doctrine end up blaming God because everything uh, went wrong, and why did you do this to me? And we hear the question even today, especially after the uh, attack on the World Trade Center, why does God, why did, how can a loving God let these horrible things happen? And that is the background issue that we must address in this opening section. But just by way of introduction and understanding what goes on here, I want you to notice that these people are not the aristocracy of Israel. These people are not the elite. These people are not in part of any royal family. They're just the everyday uh, folks in Israel. You just have a family of, of a man and a woman. Elimelech is emphasized at the beginning, but he quickly moves off the stage. And his wife, Naomi, and they have two sons, uh, Malon and Killian. So this focuses on the fact that it is through everyday believers that God is going to transform the cursing in Israel to blessing. It is through everyday believers that God blesses the nation. It is in, this, in our nation, it is through the spiritual life of the everyday believer that God is going to bless and prosper the nation. And when the believer fails to execute the spiritual life, when the believer fails to advance to spiritual maturity, when the believer fails to put Bible doctrine number one in their life, then God is going to bring discipline into the life of the nation. It isn't about the pagans in the nation. It's not about the unbelievers in the nation. Unbelievers are going, going to live like unbelievers. God is not judging a nation primarily because of what the unbelievers do. He doesn't judge in the Old Testament. He doesn't judge the nations of Assyria. He doesn't judge the nations of Babylon and Edom and Moab and all of those nations because those people have rejected him and because they're living in apostasy. He judges them. If you read through the major prophets and the minor prophets, when the prophets bring a, 
a legal case and pronounce the judgment against those nations, it is not because of their sin, but because they've rejected God. And number two, because they have been hostile to Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, uh, Through you I will bless all the nations. Those who bless you I will bless. That means even if they're unbelievers, God's going to bless them if they're positive towards Israel. But those who curse you, and the Hebrew word there is different. In the English, it reads like it's the same word. In the English, it says, those who curse you, I will curse. But in the Hebrew, it says, those who treat you lightly, I will curse harshly. And so the issue in human history rotates around two major axes. The first is God's relationship to the believer, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And second, God's plan and program for Israel. So when nations are hostile to Israel, God has removed them from the scene. There are no more Assyrians today. They have been absorbed in the movement of population centers in, the, in Central Asia. Their descendants probably could be traced down through uh, some of the Persians and, Irani and Iraqis today, but so many other ethnic groups have moved through the area that there's no such thing as a pure Assyrian anymore. So we look at this situation here and realize once again that it is the everyday believer that affects the process of the, uh, of the direction of the nation. It is how they respond to God and it is their uh, emphasis on the spiritual life that makes a difference. The most important thing that we can do in our nation today is our, to pay attention to our own spiritual life. Believers want to know, well, what can we do? How can we be involved? There are many ways we can be involved. There are ways we can be involved in terms of compassion, helping out the, the victims of these attacks, many different things of that nature that are fine and good. But the most important thing that any of us can do as a believer is to make doctrine, number one, to be applying it in our lives and to be advancing spiritually. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. And if the believer has lost his saltiness, Scripture says that we are the salt of the earth, and that means that it, we, it's a, the believer is a preservative in the nation. And when the believer is apostate, when the believer doesn't make doctrine number one, when the believer is distracted by all the cares of life so that its focus is really on the details of life, and he's looking to the details of life for security and meaning in life, then there is going to be judgment on that nation in order to get the believer's attention back on what the real priorities are. And that is what is taking place in this opening situation in uh, the book of Ruth. The nation is, going, is undergoing judgment, and the people involved here, this family, is in a microcosm, a representation of the carnality and apostasy in the whole nation. Because what they're faced with is a problem. They're faced with an economic problem. And that is that there's a famine in the land. And that famine is not something that just comes about by chance. It is not just a meteorological uh, phenomenon. It has to do with, with God's judgment on the nation. So let's begin by taking apart these verses one by one and seeing just exactly what's taking place here. In Ruth 1.1 we read, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. This is a double use of a, of a uh, common root word. And it should be translated in the days when the judges judged. You have the, the noun shofet for the judges and the verb shafat 
And in this unique way, this is one of the few times outside of the book of Judges when the verb shafat is used in the sense it's used in Judges. So we know that it is deeply grounded in the theology and the um, actions of, of Israel, the apostasy of Israel during the time of the Judges. And as we saw, the judges were just like the rest of the people. They were doing everything that was right in their own eyes. And the judges represent progressive deterioration of the nation throughout those uh, centuries when they were disobedient to God. Now, it came about, the writer says, in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land. Now, this doesn't just happen by chance. It's not just the fact that there happened to be a high-pressure system that moved down off of the Mediterranean into, into the southern part of uh, Israel and just sort of locked up there and kept all the uh, uh, rain from coming down through, the, uh, through Israel and kept it and so that all the rain went, went south and the crops weren't uh, properly uh, rained on and so everything just dried up and it was hot and dusty and they had no food. This is a judgment of God on the nation, and it has been promised as such by God. According to the covenant curses outlined in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28, if God's people, if Yahweh's people, the covenant people, the covenant nation, if they went after other gods and persisted in rebelling against the covenant of God, then God would respond not only by sending in enemies to destroy their crops and to occupy their land, which we saw in Judges several times. Not only would he do that, but he would also cut off the rains and he would send famine. That was part of the third and fourth cycles of discipline. And we see this in both passages of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26.18 reads, If also, after these things, these are the earlier cycles of discipline, if you still don't return to me, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I also will break down your pride of power. See, that's the issue in judgment is man has become arrogant. We become self-sufficient, thinking that we figured out how to solve our problems on our own. And what usually happens is when God brings disaster on a nation, that nation further hardens their heart and thinking in arrogance that they can solve the problem on their own. And man, by man's effort, can never solve man's problems. But what happens here is, is God warns that if you continue to seek to solve your problems, then I will break down your pride of power. I, all, I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. There's not going to be any rain, and the ground will dry up and be hard and difficult to plant seed, and nothing will grow. For, uh, Leviticus 26.20 states, Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce. In other words, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter... How, how many times you seed the clouds, no matter how much uh, agricultural technology you learn and apply, it, it will be useless. For your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. Now, the interesting thing is that this is focused on your land, and that means the land of Israel. And Moab, which is the land that is just across the Jordan River to directly to the east of the Dead Sea isn't that far geographically from Israel. It's just across the river. And yet what we discover here is when the famine comes to the land, that is the land of Israel, 
they just crossed the river and, and they're going to be able to solve their problem. So it's a localized famine. That indicates that this is not a famine that goes throughout the Middle East. It's localized to Israel. Israel is under divine judgment. Deuteronomy 28, 23, and 24 restates the same curse. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So the nation is going through a famine, and the writer makes, seems to just state this. This is just something that happens. But if you don't understand the context, the theological context of the Mosaic Covenant, then you miss the whole significance of that brief phrase that there's a famine in the land. We see that Israel is under divine judgment. And as such, and it's that way because of apostasy in the land. So that's the first hint that when we come to talking about the people in this book... They're part of the problem. They're not part of the solution. They're in spiritual apostasy as well. And so we're then introduced to the family in the next phrase. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah. Now, what comes to your mind when you read that? What's the first thing that ought to come to your mind? Bethlehem in Judah, that's the birthplace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the city of David. So the writer is already beginning to use phrases and pick a situation that has significance biblically. Furthermore, you should remember the fact that it was the Levite in Judges 19 who was from Bethlehem. And that even in Judges 19 and 20, you have this contrast between Bethlehem, the Levite from Bethlehem, and later when his uh, concubine is, is uh, assaulted and gang-raped, it's in Gibeah of Benjamin, which is Saul's hometown. So there's something going on beneath the text here that any Jew reading this would take into account. Gibeah is a place of judgment. Bethlehem is going to be the place of blessing. And that's going to be developed throughout the Old Testament until you come to Micah 5.2, which says that it is Bethlehem of Frata, which is Bethlehem of Judah, that, that will be the birthplace of the Messiah. So there's beginning at this point this emphasis on Bethlehem as the place of blessing. Now there's another bit of irony to this because the word Bethlehem in Hebrew, Beth Lahem, means the house. Beth is house, Lahem is bread. It is the house of bread. But there's a famine in the land and Bethlehem no longer lives up to its name. It is not the house of bread. It's now a place of famine. And so they're going to leave the house of bread in order to try to solve their problems on their own terms. So we read that there's a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah who went to sojourn in the land of Moab. Now, one of the first things that ought to come to your minds is that this isn't the first time something like this happens in the history of Israel. There, it happened to someone else. It happened to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. So hold your place in Ruth, and let's turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 begins with the call of Abram. God calls him out in verse 1 to go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. There he makes the promise to Abraham, and that's the first statement of the Abrahamic covenant. And then Finally, by verse 9, over a period of years, Abram finally comes to Israel 
And he goes down and he is living in the Negev. Negev is, means south in Hebrew. And he's living in the southern part of the land of Canaan. And then in verse 10 we read, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now Abram is out of fellowship at that point because he's faced with a problem. He's faced with economic disaster. And so what does he do? He tries to solve the problem on his own terms. Where did God tell him to be? God told him to go to Canaan. God did not tell him to go to Egypt. But what he's doing, like most of us do, is we're faced with a problem, and rather than going to uh, God in prayer and asking guidance, rather than going to the Word of God and looking at the doctrines that are taught there and trying to discern what the divine viewpoint solution is, trying, rather than trying to figure out what the what particular stress busters apply to the problem so that we can use our problem-solving devices based on divine viewpoint to solve the problem, what do we do? We try to solve the problem through our own efforts, our own ability, because we want to make life work apart from God. And so Abram is out of fellowship. And the instant he tries to solve his problem on his, own, on his own terms, and so he is outside of the will of God, and he heads to, to uh, Egypt, and while he's down there, He's going to compound his carnality because he's afraid that the Pharaoh down there will think that his wife Sarai is, is beautiful and take her from him. So he's going to lie about the fact that she's his wife and say, just tell him he's your sister. So he just gets, he compounds his problems. And that always happens whenever we get into suffering and adversity and start trying to solve our problems on our own terms. One bad decision multiplies into a second bad decision and that, then that increases into a third bad decision, and before long there's an entire web of bad decisions that are going on. Usually we figure out some way to rationalize and justify the entry point into that web, and then a few weeks or years down the road, everything starts to fall in upon us, and life crashes, and we say, well, well, doctrine really doesn't work, because all through that process we're going to church, and somehow we've managed to convince ourselves that we're really applying doctrine when we're not. See, most of us have, have a security blanket. It's real easy to, to look around the nation when it's under attack and you watch the stock market drop 10, 15, 20, 30% of its value. And if you don't have money in the stock market and you've got two or 300000 or a couple of million dollars in the bank, it's real easy to sit back and say, well, we just have to relax and trust God. And what's in the back of your mind is the fact that, well, I have a solid job, I have a solid income, I, I really don't have a lot to worry about. But when you haven't worked in a year and you've been unemployed and you've watched your savings account go from twenty or $30,000 down to zero and you've watched the stock market rip out everything you've got in your uh, IRA plan or, or retirement plan and you're left with nothing, you don't have a job for tomorrow, now you know what it is to trust God exclusively because God's ripped away the security blanket. And most Christians have some kind of security blanket. They have some kind of backup parachute that, yes, I'm trusting God, but in the back of their mind they've got something else that they're going to rely on. And so God has to rip that away. And so Abraham is trying, he's got his safety net here, and he's going to solve his problem. He's going to act like he's trusting God, but We'll go down to Egypt because God, of course, wouldn't want us to go hungry for a little while. So we'll uh, not stay in the land. But the land was the place of obedience and it was the place of blessing. So let's go back to Ruth. 
when a Jewish reader would read Ruth 1.1 and read that there's a famine in the land and Elimelech is going to take his family out of the land, which is where the Jews were supposed to stay, they immediately think he's trying to solve his problems his own way. He's not trusting God. He's relying on human resources and human abilities and human techniques to solve the problem. And rather than find blessing and prosperity and fertility in the land of Moab, what they're going to find is pain and loss and death and bitterness in the land of Moab. Whenever man tries to solve his own problems his own ways, he may survive for a while. See, Elimelech and Naomi are going to survive in Moab for a while. Their children are going to survive. The two sons are going to find wives. The fact that they marry Moabite women also suggests that they're out of fellowship. They're not paying attention to the law of Moses at all. Moses' law forbade marriage to a Gentile woman, not because she was Gentile, but because she would bring with her all of her Gentile beliefs and religious practices, and that would influence the Jews into apostasy. Now, what we're going to learn from this book is that Ruth is a positive believer. And so the marriage to Ruth is not, uh, or Ruth is going to not really demonstrate that positive volition until after the death of her husband. When he marries her, she's still a pagan Moabitess. And it's not until after death that she becomes saved. She goes back to Israel, goes back into the land, and becomes a Jew by virtue of conversion. So we see them as trying to solve their problems their own ways. And this is a problem with most of us. We think we have a way to solve our problems and make life work in the midst of adversity. And for a while, these techniques work. Somehow we're able to function. And see, many people think that that's the goal, is I just need to be able to function and somehow survive and live from day to day. God isn't about the process of simple survival. God wants us to be able to face our adversities and problems with joy that pervades our soul. James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know doctrine. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance will have its maturing result. And that's what testing is all about. And so the issue in testing is not to figure out how we can avoid it and get out from under it. Because God says, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God will, with the temptation, make a way to escape, not to avoid it. That's not what that means. It means a way to handle it uh, so that you can endure it. That means to stay, un- endurance, hupomone, means to stay under the pressure in the situation, staying in the land where there is famine, and trusting God, and then God will provide the resources in order to survive, and it's not on our strength, but on God's strength, not on our agenda, but God's agenda, and we can then grow to spiritual maturity. Well, they've completely failed, just like the nation has completely failed. They're looking to the details of life. They're looking to their own abilities to solve their problems. So in this sense, the family of Elimelech is a microcosm picture of the nation at large. The nation is trying to solve their problems on their own terms, and so they go outside of the land. They go outside of the will of God in order to solve their problems. Now, we know this because going to Moab is never portrayed as something positive in Scripture. First of all, there are five factors related to the history of Moab 
that are negative towards Israel. First of all, the Moabites had a contemptible origin. The Moabites had a contemptible origin because of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. When Lot was living with his wife and his two daughters in Sodom, when they evacuated and escaped, his wife looked back. She was transformed into a pillar of salt. When they left the land and left Sodom, they lost everything they had. The daughters feel like nobody will love them, nobody will want them, will never have children because in, in a Jewish household, in Jewish background, having a child is the way to influence the future. The most important thing a woman can do is to be married to a man and have children, and she influences the world through the husband and through the children, not directly but indirectly. See, in modern feminist America, the woman only has meaning if she can compete with the man in the man's marketplace, and so she wants to have direct influence, but that's contrary to the biblical standard of the role of men and women in culture. That doesn't mean women can't have careers and can't have jobs, but that's not the biblical basis for achieving fulfillment for a woman's soul. It is contrary to the way that women were ultimately designed. She gains her primary influence through her husband, through her role as a wife, and through her children, through her role as a mother. There's no more important or influential role than that of a mother. So they go to the land. Of, so what happened with, in Israel is that, I mean, with, with uh, Lot's daughters, is they're not going to have any children, so they decide that they're going to solve the problem their own way, and once again they create more problems. And so they got their daddy drunk, and then they seduced him one night. And one of the offspring was Moab, two sons, Moab and Ammon. And Moab is the um, founder of the Moabite nation. So they had a contemptible origin, and the Jews looked down upon them. But it's not a problem anymore if you're out of fellowship, so Elimelech headed for Moab. Secondly, the Moabites had been hostile to Israel when, when under Moses they were passing through the Moabite territory on their way to the land. After the Exodus, after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they crossed uh, south of the Dead Sea and were coming up on the eastern side of the Dead Sea and they wanted to just pass through the land of Moab and the king of Moab would not let them pass through. So there was a historical hostility there. Third reason there was hostility between Moab and Israel was that the Moabite women were used during the as a result of the uh, episode with... Uh, um, at the end of Numbers, in Numbers 25, 1 through 9, with Balaam, when Balaam told the Moabites that the way to destroy Israel was to seduce, for their women to seduce the Israelites, and then lead them into paganism and into idolatry. And so the, the Moabite women tried to seduce the Israelite men, and that's another cause for a problem between Moab and Israel. Fourth, Israel's... Uh, had excluded Moab from being a part of the assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6. And then fifth, in the early part of Judges, in Judges 3, 15 to 30, the Israelites had been oppressed by Eglon, the Moabite king. That's when Ehud, the left-handed Ehud, came in and killed Eg and assassinated uh, Eglon in the outhouse. So... For five reasons, the Moabites were antagonistic to Israel, and yet, despite all of that, this is where Elimelech is looking for succor and sustenance and survival 
when he is faced with famine. And this is what happens with the apostate believer and with the reversionist believer, is he always looks where he shouldn't look in order to solve the problems in his own life. So the picture here that we pick up is that this, this family is a microcosmic picture of the apostasy in the land, and they're trying to solve their problems any way they can apart from exclusive obedience to God. They're able to survive, but it doesn't ultimately solve the problem. They manage to find a measure of happiness, but in the end there is heartache, there's loss, and there's death. And this is what happens whenever the believer looks to some kind of mechanism apart from the Word of God to solve problems in their life. Man by man's efforts can't solve man's problems. And second principle is that the only solution is the divine solution and that the human solution is no solution. Now we come to verse 2. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Now one of the first things we ought to note, and I'll point this out as we go through the book, the writer uses interesting subtleties of language in order to draw our attention to something. And one of the rules of Bible study and observation is to look for repetition. Now there's one word that's repeated three times in this verse. And that's the word name. So that draws our attention to the names of these individuals and that perhaps these names have significance, that the writer is emphasizing their names because they foreshadow the events in their lives. For example, the first person named is Elimelech. Elimelech is a compound name from Eli, which means my God, El. The first syllable, L, means God. The I is the first person common suffix, meaning my God. And Melech means king. So it can be translated, my God is king, or perhaps my God reigns. So the name that was given to him by his parents suggests that his parents were believers, maybe even in the Joshua generation or the generation after Joshua. And they were believers, and they understood that God reigned. Now, this is during the time of the judges. What's the key verse in Judges? There's no king in the land. But Elimelech's parents are saying, my God is king. So they recognize the authority of God, and they give this name to their son, which honors God. But when Elimelech uh, comes along and names his children, it's quite a different story. The second name in this verse is the name Naomi, which means pleasant, sweet, kind, or gentle. It's, it's from the Hebrew word Naem, meaning pleasant, sweet, kind, or gentle. And yet there is a play on words here because when we come down to verse... Uh, Verse 13 or 14, she says, Don't call me pleasant, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter, because I ha- call me Mara, because I have become bitter. So we see this transformation once again, that there is something positive about her name, that her parents named her something that was positive, but by the time she becomes an adult, something negative has happened. And that's illustrated by the names they give their sons. You have two sons. The first is Malone, and that comes from the root. The H and the L form the root of this, this word. The M at the beginning 
is a, usually a sign of a, of a uh, participle. So that's a, a prefix. And it's from the Greek word hul, which means sick, weak, or infirm. So you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him sickly. And that's what they did. And this, is a, this represents the fact that, that there's, they're living during a time of famine. They've got a sick son, and, and there's no longer any emphasis on the glory of God or the sustenance of God or the grace of God. It's on the fact that, oh, woe is me. We've got problems, and our kid's sick. And then he has a brother, Kilion. And Kilion means failing, pining, or ceasing. So they don't have very positive names, and that indicates that the parents are feeling down on, down in the dumps, that life's been treating them poorly, and they're not trusting God. They're pessimistic. They're feeling defeated in life. Uh, modern psychiatrists would say they've got a poor self-image. Problem is, they're not trusting God, and they're under divine discipline. It has nothing to do with self-image at all. It has to do with whether or not we trust God or don't trust God. Self-image is a pagan psychiatric category. It has nothing to do with biblical thinking. So we get a picture here of what's taken place in this family and in the land. There was a time when there was some, they were positive to God and they looked to God as the king and authority, but now that God is being rejected and they're in apostasy, they're under divine discipline, and they're miserable. And misery comes as a result of making bad decisions in life it's not, and then God intensifies that in terms of divine discipline for his children because he wants to get our attention and make us focus on his grace and exclusively depend upon him and not on our own ability. And we come to the fourth verse. Then Elimelech, or the third verse, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And we think of the sorrow that's involved there and the heartache that she must have gone through when she loses her husband because in this culture the husband is the exclusive breadwinner women cannot go out and get a job as a widow she is left completely upon her sons to take care of her there's no social security system they didn't have an IRA or a KEO plan and if they had and this depression brought on by this famine that would have been wiped out so now she is totally dependent upon uh, weakly and pining, sickly and pining, her two sons, for her sustenance. Now, if you had two sons named sickly and pining, I don't think you'd feel real confident that they could take care of you. So she's, uh, she's not only suffering the pangs of grief and sorrow over the loss of her husband, she doesn't look forward to a real happy future with these two kids taking care of her. Then we find in verse 4, after his death, they, they get married. So that brings some joy to her because perhaps through their children, her line will continue. They took for themselves Moabite women, and that immediately tells us again that they're out of fellowship. There's no spirit, nothing uh, spiritually positive about their lifestyle. They're not focused on the Mosaic Law. They're not concerned about doing what God says to do, and they just marry whomever they want. And they marry two women, Orpah and Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Now, there's, it's an odd construction there at the end, and we don't know whether this is just a summary of the entire time period they were in the land. I, I take it that way, but it could mean that, that they were married for about ten years. But I think it, it's just a summary statement 
that from the time they went into Moab until the time they left was approximately a 10-year period of time. And apparently by the time they leave, the famine has, has been lifted in the land. So apparently the, the Jews back in Israel have gone through one of the cycles of discipline and now they have their focus back on God and God is bringing uh, blessing and fertility back into the land of Israel. So now the meanings, so we look at this passage, and again we have the emphasis on names, but the etymology of these names is certainly unclear. Orpah, it's suggested, derives from a word meaning neck, and uh, the Jewish Midrashic explanation was that uh, this name indicates or foreshadows her turning her neck or turning her back on her mother-in-law. But that's not 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 certain, and we really don't know what that means. And the name Ruth is the most obscure name in the book, and there's no clear consensus on what her name means at all. So it doesn't seem to be something that the Holy Spirit thought was significant, or at least did not continue in um, the understanding of the Hebrew language. But it's in this verse, in verse um, 5, that we see the, the core problem in it, in in the book, verse 5, Then both Malon and Kilian also died, and the woman was bereft of her, of her two children and her husband. And in a Jewish society, the presence of children and grandchildren and the ongoing line is a sign of divine blessing and a sign of divine prosperity. And so she has left bereft of any future she is left bereft of her sustenance. She's lost her two sons who would take care of her. There's nothing to fall back on. There's, there's no social security system. She has nothing to look forward in life but a life of, uh, of being impoverished and having nothing. So then she is going to address her children. But before we get into verse 6, we need to stop and look at the doctrine of suffering because this is one of the most difficult things for people to, to answer and this is what Naomi is going to be struggling with because she is going to be reacting she's going to be reacting to this suffering and she is going to rather than trust God she is going to react towards God and she is going to become bitter and that is because she views this suffering as being unjust and that's one of the most difficult things for people to address in life is the presence of unjust suffering and the presence of evil in fact, the problem of evil, the problem of, of uh, unvarnished evil in the world is often a question that people raise, an objection they raise to Christianity. How can a loving God let bad things happen to good people? That's usually how it's phrased. In a more sophisticated way, it's how can a God who is good let evil take place in his universe if he's all-powerful? And we'll look at the various details of that argument in the next week or two. But for now, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 94.1. See, evil in the Bible is not simply some abstract philosophical concept. It's not just struggling with the presence of something that is, that is horrible or evil in an abstract sense, but is always presented in terms of human experience. And it is never, it is never glossed over in the Scriptures. It is presented as a real issue and problem that people deal with, and this is seen in the voice of the psalmist in Psalm 94. 
He begins by saying, O Lord God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, recognizing that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not up to man, but it is up to the supreme court of heaven to execute vengeance. Rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the arrogant. So the psalmist is in a position where he feels like he has gone through unjustified suffering, been treated in an ill manner by uh, some people, and he's calling upon the Supreme Court of Heaven to deal with the situation and to render recompense to the arrogant. And then he raises the question that often reverberates in the souls of many people who are going through difficult or horrible times. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked... Exalt. See, the question that the psalmist is asking here is the obverse or reverse of the question that most people ask. When things get bad, most people or many people fall into some sort of self-absorbed, self-pity, and they say, how can a good God let bad things happen to good people? Well, I think the most interesting question is, how can a good God let good things happen to bad people? Think about it. It's not the question, how can a good God... Let, bad, let um, bad things happen to good people, but how can a good God let good things happen to bad people? And see, that's what the psalmist is asking. How long are the wicked going to prosper? How long are these people who are apostates, who are involved in idolatrous religion, these people who are operating on vengeance, these terrorists who are operating on this unmitigated hatred, towards America, how long are they going to have success? How long are they going to prosper? How long are they going to live a comfortable lifestyle? How long are they going to seem to get away with their criminality and with their, their uh, attacks on innocent people? And that's what he's asking. How long, O oh Lord, how, how can you let these, any good things continue to happen to these horribly wicked people? He goes on to explain them in verse 4. They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. He's listing all their crimes. Look how horrible these people are, Lord. They're they're always speaking against you. They do wickedness. They vaunt themselves. They're proud of themselves. They crush people. They're oppressive in their power. And they they afflict your heritage. That is, they're they're attacking Israel. They're anti-Semitic. They slay the widow and the stranger. You know, it doesn't matter who they kill. They kill everybody. They, they murder the orphans. And they have said, the Lord doesn't see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. They reject God as being actively involved in human history and being able to punish them for their sins. So this is the issue that is presented, that reverberates in the souls of many people, and it is an issue that the Bible directly addresses. And due to the time, we'll come back and begin this next time with an introduction on how to deal with the question, how can a good God allow this kind of suffering to take place? Often it's expressed, you hear it from the Jewish community, how can a good God allow something like the Holocaust to take place? How can a good God allow famine? How can a good God allow war? How can a good God allow all of these horrible things to take place? And we will look at that in a couple of weeks when I get back from California with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to to begin this study and to understand how you are even in control of evil and you are working all things together for good. Father, we look at this book and we see that the major theme here is how you transform cursing into blessing because you are a good God and a God of grace even in the midst of horror, even in the midst of the most uh, 
horrific circumstances imaginable, we know that you never leave us or forsake us, and your grace is never taken from us, even in our disobedience. Father, we pray this morning that if there's anyone here that is uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. We know that your grace never leaves us, and the greatest manifestation of your grace is that Jesus, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And that salvation is not based on who we are or what we've done, but salvation is based upon Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That if you're here this morning and you're unsure of your salvation, Scripture says all you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's the most important decision you'll ever make because it determines your eternal destiny. Father, we pray for the rest of us that we would continue to be steadfast in the second most important decision in life, and that is to make doctrine the number one priority in our life, to take these principles, apply them to our thinking, so that we can continue to advance towards spiritual maturity and to glorify you. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.